0: So tonight I like to I like to first consider uh, a little uh, question uh, I got uh, as a note which I thought was quite an interesting thing to look at a little bit and so the note was about... Uh, could you talk a little more about Buddhism and mindfulness? And the question is, can mindfulness help us to reach our full potential without also having to take refuge in the Buddha? So I think this is a a question that can kind of uh, appear nowadays. Since in the way you hear about Buddhism, but you hear about also what is nowadays called secular mindfulness. And then you might wonder what's the difference, what's the similarity? And so in a way the question is a little bit I mean you have two questions a little bit. One is do I need to be a Buddhist to reach the full potential? Do I need to take refuge in the Buddha? to reach the full potential? And in a way, can secular mindfulness help me to reach my full potential (coughs) without taking refuge in the Buddha? So I think in a way we have to see that some people are inspired uh, by the Buddha, by the Buddhist tradition. And so within the Buddhist tradition, it really makes sense in a way to take refuge in the Buddha, but you also take refuge in the Dharma, you also take refuge in the Sangha. So in a way you take refuge in the historical Buddha, you take refuge in the teaching of the historical Buddha, and then you take refuge in the community, which has helped that teaching to cross over time. When you are within such a framework, of course, generally everybody is trying in some way to fully potentize the practice, the teaching. And at the same time, not everybody might feel like they want to become a Buddhist. Not everybody might need or want to be part of a religious group in that way. And so what I found uh, very interesting is we could first look what does it mean to take refuge in the Buddha because actually you could nearly say different tradition sees the Buddha differently. So at one level you have the historical Buddha but At another level, you have like a representation of the Buddha, what does the Buddha represent? And so, in some tradition, it represents the all enlightened person, the fully awakened person. And then often the idea is through many, many lifetimes, we too could become an awakened Buddha. In all the tradition, the idea is that we each have a seed of us, the seed of a Buddha and that in one lifetime, if we cultivate the seed, then the Buddha will appear, will blossom. And then in the tradition I I studied at the beginning, the idea is actually you're already a Buddha that what you need to do is to realize it. So in a way you have a very you could nearly say different concept of taking refuge in the Buddha because in a way in the first one you really take refuge in the historical Buddha one could say and the possibility of doing the same over many lifetimes. In the other one you take refuge in the fact that if the Buddha could do it I could do it too. But it might take some time. And then the last idea is well, you're already a Buddha. Just see it. Just be it. As a nun, uh, I interviewed many years ago in Korea, when I came back after stopping living there, I said to her, What's your practice? Oh, she said, Oh, my practice is to be a Buddha. So in the morning, I do my meditation, a little chanting, and then I go out with the intention to be a Buddha today, to have the same wisdom, the same compassion, the same clarity as the Buddha. And then in the evening she comes back and she review how Buddha-like had she been, (laughs) and how ordinary-like had she been. And then the next day, she starts again. And I thought that was such a wonderful practice. So in a way we can also take refuge in our own potential for flourishing, for growth. And one can be a Buddhist to do that or not. To me what was very intriguing is that now I am part, I was asked to help with a scientific study where in France, in Normandy, in Caen, they are done a protocol where you have three groups of 15 seniors, male, female, over 65 plus, and they must not, to be part of the group, they must not have done yoga or meditation. So it's a little slanted. And people, other people say, well, I would have liked to join, but they could not because... No meditation, no yoga. So the really, you could say, ordinary people, not interested in Buddhism, not knowing anything about Buddhism, about meditation, anything. And the reason they came and also it's a lottery you have 45 people, 15 will do the meditation, 15 will learn English, 15 will do nothing. And they chosen by lottery they have no choice and so the first group happened and so for 18 months they do 20 minutes of meditation every day or plus if they want and they have once a week a two hour class where they do about 40 to 60 minutes of meditation so we did not know how it was going to be teaching people who don't know anything And so we started to teach them meditation. I mean, in France you cannot scientific study, no mention of Buddha, no mention of anything like this. Just mindfulness. But what was very interesting for us is that very quickly it changed them. They said that's so. And then we finished uh, last year with that group. They did their 18 months. And all of them said, yeah. It changed me. I did not think it was going to change me as much. And there is like one fellow who was kind of like what I would call the thinker of the group who said <coughs> at one point, we will not not be changed by this. The fact that we do this, it will have an impact on us more than we thought. Because they came, actually for two reasons. They wanted to help science, and they were all worried about Alzheimer's because it's in their family. And they thought, well, if this meditation can help me to make my brain better and prevention, then let's do that. So that's all, in a way, they were looking at. How can I make my brain a little better? And then I won't get Alzheimer's. We don't know about that. They'll have to go up the fMRI to see that, but it, it made a big difference to them. And what we could see, me and the other teacher, is that they flourished. And they flourished in many different idiosyncratic ways. The first thing that happened is that they became kinder to themselves. Because they were already kind to others but not so kind to themselves, so they became kinder to themselves. And also they became more able to deal with others who were difficult or in terms of emergency. But I would say one of the sweetest things somebody said, out of the blue one day, and she was quite shy, and she said, hmm, I don't know why, but people are nicer to me now. Is she nicer to them? Is she less afraid of them? You could not know. But it seems to have that effect for her. So in a way, personally I think when we practice meditation and mindfulness, you could say you have a short term goal. I want to reduce my suffering, I want to feel better, I want to often there is kind of like kind of we try to convince ourselves that it's a good idea. But personally I mm-hmm. think as we cultivate and continue, what it does is really develop wisdom and compassion. And in a way there is no end to that. Because if you look at the text, what is the aim of the Buddha? He's very clear. He said, I hope that you will not be conditioned by greed, hatred, and ignorance. So, I mean, this is a big thing. Can we get 100% unconditioned by greed, hatred, and ignorance? Possibly not. But possibly we could aim to improve the not being conditioned by. And I think, in a way, that's what we're aiming for, that it be through so the Buddhist path or that it be through the mindfulness path. And that's why I think one of the very interesting kind of basic framework of Buddhism, I would say, is actually very secular. And this is the Eightfold Path, the path with the eight branches, which is basically about practice. But it showed that practice is actually not just sitting on the cushion. Because whenever we think about mindfulness and meditation, you think of sitting on a cushion. I mean I love seeing all these pictures of people <clears throat> sitting on the cushion, but they're improving nowadays. Before you would see them, you know, they were sitting like this and you thought mm-hmm. mm-hmm. this person meditating, I doubt it. <laughs> this is for the photo. Now you can see that they kind of must have done either yoga of the sun done some meditation they seem to be sitting in a better posture and generally this indicates you know, meditation the posture but if you look at the eightfold path actually it looks at every aspect of our life because you have appropriate you can call it appropriate, authentic, personally I would like to call it more wise vision, then you have wise intention, then you have wise action, wise speech, wise livelihood, then you have wise mindfulness, wise effort, and wise concentration. So actually on the eight. only two are actually focused on mindfulness and concentration, which would we'll consider meditation. And then you have the wise Effort in terms of cultivating the meditation, cultivating the concentration. But actually, the wise effort is much more than that. I mean, to me, like, I did not know about wise effort because my tradition, when I started, did not have those. And then I met Ayakema, one of the favorite teachers of uh, Jenny, and I was interviewing her for a book on Buddhist women, and then she was saying, you know, for effort, four great efforts. And I was kind of trying to look like I knew what she was talking about, but <laughs> I had no idea. So I was not so sure what she was saying. I thought, is she talking about effect? You know. And then she said, no, no, no. four great efforts. And I think she might have thought I was a little, did not know much. <laughs> But then when I read the definition, it was so interesting. The definition with wise effort Mm -hmm. is uh, cultivate the condition so when there is good circumstances, good condition, cultivate so that the good condition, the good circumstances, the good state will continue. Before Mm -hmm. the beneficial state appear, can you cultivate the condition so it's more likely that the beneficial state appears? Once you are in a difficult state, can you try to let it go? But can you have also the effort before the harmful state appear? Can you help the condition so that it does not appear? So actually the efforts are not just are not about striving, the efforts are about clarity, looking at condition. And that's what is interesting with meditation, that sometimes we feel it's hard work, but actually what you can notice is that if there is a really good state in the meditation, often we think, I must go deeper, I must push. Actually, the only thing you have to do is just be with it. And then you continue by itself. The same with loving kindness. You notice that look in your daily life. You feel joy or you feel this friendliness. And actually, you don't have to do anything. Because if it's there and you just accompany it, it will continue. This is what is beautiful about this effort. You don't have to do much. You just have to be aware of it, and just being aware of it actually will feed it. And so in a way, those efforts, they're not just about practice, they're not just about sitting, they're not saying, you know, get up at 3 o'clock in the morning. They're saying, you know, what is it going to help? What is it that's not going to help? But tonight what i like to talk more is about the five. like. You have the three, which we have talked a little about, mindfulness, concentration, effort, we've mentioned a few times. And so I would like to look more at the beginning, at the kind of the other five. So you have wise vision. And then let's look at the definition of wise, appropriate vision. It's also called right view. I mean, you might have heard it as right view. Personally, I prefer a little bit talking about nearly appropriate vision, or you could nearly say actually what it is about. From the definition, is more like wise insight, because that's the definition. When one understands our form, mm-hmm. feeling, perception, formation, and consciousness and how the eyes sees and so on, are impermanent, one thereby possesses right view, wise vision inside. So in a way, if we go into our daily life, and if we see more of the impermanent, if we see more that things are changing, then actually we're already cultivating this appropriate vision, this appropriate insight. And this is not something which is esoteric. We don't need to have a meditation cushion for that. We don't need to have incense or special time. And in a way here, you saw it, at one level you saw it more because you had more time to see it because you are not so rushed and pushed by different things. But this this is something which I think is so useful, that's the key to the practice in daily life, is in a way when something happens, especially if it's something you feel inside yourself, to ask yourself, how long is this going to last? And then you can see, hmm, it's gone. So in a way, you accompany it. And then you can see if it doesn't last very long. Then, I did not need to do much. Then, it seems to last a little longer. Or it seems to repeat itself. But then again, although it seems that you might be sad, regularly or angry regularly or Mm -hmm. fearful regularly, you are not Mm -hmm. feeling it all the time. And I think this is really vital in daily life to feel when I feel well, when I feel calm, when I feel joyful. Can I be aware of that as much as when I don't feel it. That I think is really one of the key to really in a way have this wise vision. Because once you really know, oh yeah, the happiness, the joy will pass. The pain will also pass. But then you might look at back to right effort. What are the conditions that gave rise to it? Sometimes we can know, sometimes not. But this is interesting to look at what I call the trigger, the condition, the contributing factor. I used to get irritable, and then I look for somebody to be irritated with, Well, it was not my fault. It must be somebody else. And generally, I would find my poor husband. <laughs> Well, not done anything. And then I realized, yeah, he's not done anything. Then I thought, but what's going on? Why am I irritable? And then I realized it's because I was tired. So then I decided to become more aware of when I was tired. And then when I became aware I'm tired, I went to rest. And then I became much less irritable which was nice of my husband and myself. So you know, it's kind of looking at condition. And then, of course, if we have an intense state to know this is going to last a certain time, but at some point, it will pass. So you know, having that wise vision. Then you have the next one. And the next one is... You could say wise intention, wise thought. (coughs) And so the quote, and what (coughs) is wise thought, intention? It's a thought of renunciation, the thought of non-ill will, the thought of harmlessness. This is what is called appropriate thought. So here he's kind of looking basically at the quality. I mean, this is what meditation is wonderful. You can really look at the quality of your thinking. Because of course the quality of your thinking is going to be very influencing the quality of your relating. So in a way it's kind of, not in order to judge, but in order to become clearer. Am I making things more complicated? more complex am I wanting more things? Am I having this kind of ill will? Hmm when we grumpy this is interesting mm. and kind of this grumpiness, this irritation, this impatience. And it's interesting when we irritated, impatient, then generally there is a little ill will that can arise. So it's kind of looking at that. What is my intention here? I mean, one of the things that can happen when you sit in meditation is that you might find yourself, suddenly you remember something from the past, and you feel, oh, this is terrible, they were terrible, well, yeah, 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 yeah. And then you bypass the present, then you go into the future, and you plot revenge. <laughs> kind of very nice activity, in meditation. <laughs> and I'll say that, and I'll get them. I mean, that's not non-ill will. Just kind of looking, what's my intention? I think that's what very much loving kindness is about. That good will. Personally, I would nearly talk about generosity kind of a generosity of mind, which give ourselves and other time and space. Often we say, why am I like that? Why can't they do this? Well, because I can't. Because they can't. Because very likely it condition our soul. <coughs> but how can we creatively engage so that we're not going to the intention Will not be of this kind of ill will. I'm going to get there, or I'm going to take advantage, or whatever it might be. And kind of, what does it mean? To me, this is very interesting. What does it mean? An intention of harmlessness. <laughs> harmlessness to myself, harmlessness to others. This is very difficult. We cannot not cause harm. Harmlessness. I mean, Often we don't intend to harm people, but sometimes we harm them out of, one could say, mindlessness, or out of not paying attention, or out of selfishness. So this is interesting. What is going to help me to be harmless, to have that intention of harmlessness? And what actually is going to the opposite? kind of this harmfulness toward myself, toward others. And within the renunciation, personally, I think you have two aspects, kind of to simplify, but also to question a little. What is it I want, but what is it I need? Because even at the time of the Buddha, he thought the monks and the nuns were supposed to be monastic and said libate still had requisite need. They needed food, they needed shelter, they needed medicine, they needed clothes. And what is fascinating is that there is this beautiful text where the Buddha says What is a way to become a great disciple of mine, a great follower of mine? I'm going to tell you. So you're really expecting something like, you know, going to cave, sitting for hours, reaching whatever state, or thing of that nature? Not. He says, You are disciple of the Buddha if you are contented with your clothes.
1: And then he described
0: all what the monks were doing about, you know, i 'm being this different type of clothes or different kind of, kind of more fancy things, or this. And so you have these kind of <coughs> four lines, and you think, hmm, even in his time, they're kind of trying to have something more fancy. They said, can you be contented with what you give her? You just need to cover your body, not to adorn it. Then the next thing is, can you be contented with your house? And actually he then go on talking about saying you don't really need windows, not four <laughs> no. windows, and not so many curtains either. So it looked like they were supposed to have a simple heart. And then they started to make it a little more mm-hmm. fancy, with windows and curtains and whatnot. And he said, Can you be just contented to have a shelter without adorning it? And then can you be contented with your food? And it's the same thing. They're kind of trying to kind of get more fancy food. And then the fourth one is actually to practice bhavana, to practice meditation. So in a way, I think this kind of, when we talk about renunciation, it doesn't mean that we have to renounce everything. Recently, was some somebody was saying, oh, I must renounce coffee. I must renounce coffee. Well, you can renounce coffee, but... I don't think that might be the most important thing to read. (laughs) But can you be contented? Can we be contented with providing for our needs instead of the tonality? Hmm, but if I had this, mm, then I would really be happy. That's interesting. In terms of the tonality, with that one. Then you have appropriate speech. Why speech? And what is right speech? Refraining from lying, refraining from slander, refraining from harsh speech, refraining from frivolous speech. I mean, Mm -hmm. lying, I mean, you find it everywhere. But this is interesting, lying. Why would we lie? Just out for fun? Or do we lie because we don't want to get into trouble? Or do we lie because we want to take advantage? That is interesting. Why do we lie if we do so? So it's kind of like... And for him, he thinks, you know, lying is harmful because you're not saying the truth. At the same time, it doesn't mean you must say the complete truth all the time. When some people ask me certain questions, like, do you think this guru is a good one and I know he's a bad one? And if they're 50 years old, old man, I say, it's okay, you can try it out. If it's a young lady, I say, possibly not. Then, other question, am I remained silent? So, in a way, it's for us to see how do we use the truth? What is our connection to truth? And it could be also about clarity can we be clear in our communication? That's an interesting one. Then, reframing from slandering. I mean, I presume we don't go around slandering too much accusing people and putting them down and saying nasty things about them. But we might say, you are stupid. Or you might say, you'd never do anything right. So you see, we might not slander, as in calling people's name, but we might. Why would we slander somebody? Generally, is to put somebody down, and so I think in terms of really our speech, our speech is, I mean, do we use speech to exist? Like I am here, and when I speak, I exist, or do I use speech to communicate? There is another place where the Buddha suggests that we help the harmony among others. Speech would bring harmony. So with slandering, it's kind of again looking at why would I do this? Why would I put somebody down? And when we speak to ourselves, which we do a lot, why would I put myself down? That also would be the question. Again, can I have generosity to myself, to others? Reframing from half speech that's a tone it's interesting the tone the tone of the voice and sometimes the people, other people are more aware of it than ourselves where our tone changes when I get stressed my tone changes it kind of goes a little up kind of, this kind of and becoming aware of that because it might express my stress but when the other person hear it they hear it as She's attacking me because of the, the way we kind of respond to certain pitches in terms of the, the speech. So it's kind of like hard speech, loud speech. And then, what is also, I mean, something we might do, not intending anything, but you say something and they look at you like you say it another time a little more loud still look at you funny. <laughs> then you repeat another time even more loud and they still don't get it. But I mean repeating it loud generally doesn't help. I mean, unless they really are hard of hearing, which is another story. So it's kind of really can we to me speech is so is such a practice when we speak to others. How do we speak and what is the effect? on our speech, on others. To really see that the mindfulness is not just to be aware of ourselves. The mindfulness is actually to be, you could, as aware of ourselves and others in a sensitive way, you could say. Because you can be aware of yourself in too much a kind of like a judging way. You can also be aware of others either in a jungy way or in an anxious way. I mean, are they like this? Are they like that? Do they mean this? Do they mean that? But here what I mean to be aware of others is in a way aware of others for themselves. So like if I say something, does it look like they get it? Does it look like the tool kind of make it easier for them to mm. hear it? So in a way it's kind of becoming interested not only in what you say, but how is it going to land? How is a person going to understand it? Of course we will make mistakes, but can we learn from those mistakes? I know many years ago when I started my career as a teacher, and I mean I'm French and so I kind of I learned from other people about language, speaking in English. And Stephen, my husband, used to, because he's a teacher too, and he used to often, in talks, say, I would argue. So I would say, okay, I can argue too, in terms of like, as a mean of language. And then once I was teaching by myself, somebody said to me, wait a minute, you are a Buddhist, you should not be arguing. I said, all right. And I said, what can I say? So, and then I started to suggest. I would suggest. <laughs> and... I mean, it does not matter to me. It's just kind of a word. And if the word lands better, then I'm happy to suggest and I don't need to harm <laughs> you. Know. So in a way, how do we treat language? Do we treat language in a flexible way? Or kind of, you know, do we treat language, I say my truth and I don't care how it lands. Well, personally, you need to care how it's learned. And then, of course, there is a, the, the, the fourth one, which is called frivolous language. That's in a way what you could say is like kind of chit But he's not saying that we should never chit But I think he's kind of saying be careful when you're just talking idly. Why are well, you just kind of chit-chatting, talking idly? Personally, I think it can be useful as kind of, you know, social kind of oiling, you know, kind of just how is the weather and things like that. I mean, once I live with somebody who could not do that. He could not have free verbal speech whatsoever in any form. It had to be profound you have to talk profoundly all the time <laughs> breakfast, lunch, dinner profound <coughs> and I must say was so tiring <laughs> people had a tendency to avoid him so he could not have profound <laughs> I'm not saying we should not have profound things but of course we need to kind of have a friendly talking with each other but then What are we talking about? And a lot of the time, we're talking about other people, possibly in not such a friendly way. (laughs) You know, we might be gossiping. We might be negative gossiping. And uh, we had a friend many years ago. She decided that she would never speak about anybody if they were not present. And she did this for three months. And she said he reduced her speaking by eighty percent. (laughs) (laughs) (coughs) So this is interesting that one. When we have this little chit chat, what is it about? You know it could be harmless or it could be harmful. Because through speech we can really influence others. So are we going to influence them with harmlessness? Are we going to influence them toward harmfulness? And then you have appropriate wise action. And what is appropriate wise action? Refraining from taking life, refraining from taking what is not given, refraining from sexual misconduct. This is called appropriate wise action. So here again what you can see is very much a theme. This is a theme which goes throughout in a way the Buddha's teaching. And I think it would be important to also go throughout the secular mindfulness. This is the idea of harmlessness. It's really a very strong idea of the Buddha, that the benchmark is, easy is, is going to cause harm to myself and others. And so, action is the same. We have to act. But can we act in such a way that is not harming others? Are we not taking advantage of others? Are we not respecting the body? of other, We're not respecting our relationship. And so here what I think is important to look at in terms of action is an idea that is found in the the tradition I trade in first, in uh, Korea. And this idea that when you have an action, actually you have three things going on. One is that you have the intention motivating the action then you have the action itself and then you have the effect of that action. And then the teaching is to, are they all harmless? And this gets really complicated because you could have a harmless intention, you could have a harmless action and you could have a harmful result. And sometimes you have a harmful intention, you could have a harmless result too. It's kind of strange. So, in a way, when we look at our action, it's really important to look a little what is behind it. And also to look a little bit what is the effect of that action on myself and others. <laughs> Not as a mean to be constantly checking ourselves. Double guessing ourselves. But but just to be clearer, you know, about what motivates me, but also what inspires me. (laughs) Because, you know, what is inspiring my action? And when I do an action which is harmless, kind of, you know, what is the result? And if the result is harmless, and learning from that. So, really looking and the whole different aspect of action. Because a lot some of the time we act and it's actually not reflected. It's kind of like action as automatic reaction, which actually might not be so helpful for ourselves and others. So in a way the mindfulness doesn't make us afraid of taking an action, but just be a little clearer of what happened. And so in a way that's where the mindfulness really comes in in terms of the action. And I remember this, um, when I was in the monastery in Korea and uh, passing by the kitchen and I had a friend who was kind of washing the rice because there was some old rice that needed to be washed. So he had a big tub, you know. And in the monastery you must not waste one grain of rice because the rice is donated. And it's kind of really people have worked hard. So you must not waste one grain of rice. So he was kind of washing the rice one time, two times, so kind of the water pass, the water pass, and no grain of rice is lost, perfect. And just a third time if I, you know, if last washing of the rice, and just at that moment the precept master passed by. And just at that moment, bath he got all these rice going down the drain. And of course, the preceptor lets him have it. How can you wait so right? You know? and, so he came, oh. and then later, I asked him, what happened? He said, oh, I saw a pretty lady passing by. <laughs> <laughs> and I lost my concentration. <laughs> so in a way, sometimes we can do action in automatic. And sometimes it's okay, but sometimes not. It's kind of bringing that caring, careful mindfulness to the intention, to the action, to the result of the action. And then you have appropriate livelihood. And to me, I think this is wonderful, that among the Eightfold Path, you have something as concrete as this appropriate wise livelihood. So what helps us to live? Or it could be an activity which gives meaning to our life. And nowadays I think this is a real, actually this appropriate wise livelihood is really an ethical conundrum. I think sometimes you can be in an activity which is definitely kind of totally kind of Harmless, Because, of course, the definition for appropriate livelihood is that it is harmless. Harmless for yourself, harmless for others. But the problem with livelihood is that we cannot necessarily choose an activity which is totally harmless. I mean, we can try to choose activities which are for benefiting others. But sometimes we don't have as much choice as that. And so if we kind of don't have the choice, it's kind of, can I do this activity in the most harmless way I can? Personally, I I think also in terms of livelihood, like what I like to look at is, what is the atmosphere in the office? how do I work? I think this is a very interesting place to bring mindfulness to, is how do I work? Can I work in such a way that this becomes also part of the meditation? Can I relate to the people in such a way in the office that there is more harmony? Because I think it seems to me that's one of the things you might have a livelihood, you might work on your own, then it might be easier, but sometimes you have to work with others. And often that's where the difficulty comes in. How do I treat others if I am above them? How do I treat people who are equal to me? And that I think is kind of like bringing that principle again of generosity, (coughs) of goodwill when we work. at the same time, being aware that nowadays things are so complex, you know that you can, you could be selling clothes, and at one level this is fairly harmless. And then if you look at the whole chain and where the clothes come from, and then if you don't sell the clothes and they're not bought, then the people over there don't have the work, even if it's partly paid. So it's kind of like, a kind of as a the whole chain. <laughs> There is this whole dilemma of ethics in the chain. And I think in terms of livelihood, to really kind of try to do the best we can considering the condition that we generally will not have a perfectly, totally harmless livelihood. We can do the best we can within those conditions. And